Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the old fashioned radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. This month, our guest is Staco Troncoso. Uh, he's a Spain-based activist who's a co-founder of the Guerrilla Media Co uh, Collective and a co-author of a new manifesto on the idea of distributed cooperative organization. And his work revolves around creating uh, an economy and culture less centered on private property, more centered on the commons. We're going to be exploring the question uh, uh, with him about why we should care about care work, where care work can fit into the structure of our organizations, um, how care work might be accounted for better in how we think about our relationship with the economy. We're recording uh, uh, live here at uh, CU Boulder with a participating audience, so we'll hear from, uh, from those who are with us uh, in this conversation a little later in the show. Um, in the meantime, though, I want to uh, introduce you to uh, Stacco Troncoso, a longtime friend and collaborator who's uh, inspired my work for years. Um, and he exemplifies, in a lot of ways, the reasons why international networks have been so important to me. Um, over the years, I've gone back and forth in my own work between critical activism, uh, radical activism, uh, activism often, and constructive entrepreneurship, people who are trying to build uh, alternatives in the economy. And in the US, I've often found that there can be a really thick line between the two of them. Uh, it's hard to pass from one to the other. Um, uh, and, and people on either side of the divide of activist and entrepreneur might not trust each other, might not know how to uh, talk with each other, work together. Um, and uh, in, in Europe, among people like Stocko and the, the networks that, that uh, Stocko is part of, uh, I've really seen another way, a way in which uh, you can do kind of both together and integrate them and uh, uh, make them stronger together. Um, and I, I think you'll see uh, what I mean in this conversation. This month, uh, Stocko and his collaborators have just released a powerful new document, this manifesto on DISCOs or distributed cooperative organizations. You can find it at disco.coop, disco like the dancing. And um, it proposes uh, a model built out of lessons that he and his collaborators have developed in practice. Um, it's a critique on the one hand of a kind of techno-utopianism um, and an attempt to seriously account for what a lot of our businesses and organizations don't account for, uh, particularly uh, uh, care work and, uh, and the other kinds of labor and participation that are highlighted in feminist economics that have often been left to the margins of the economy. Um, this is something that, a uh, set of questions I've been thinking about a lot um, in my own life. I, I spent the first uh, half of the year working as a full-time parent and um, thinking a lot about uh, living uh, a great deal, the questions around the economy that surrounds us and the value uh, that work has in it, whether uh, that care work has in it, whether we 
want to treat care as something uh, external to the economy, protected from it, or whether we want to integrate care into how we calculate value and uh, how we distribute it. Um, and Stocko and his uh, collaborators have developed an approach that kind of uh, uh, challenges the premise, premises of both um, and uh, attempts to, to synthesize um, uh, a new alternative for how we might conceive of, of uh, these really essential types of work. Um, Stocko, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me here. Um, can you start out by telling us about some of the contexts out of which this uh, DISCO model has emerged, particularly, you know, what is the uh, Guerrilla Media Collective and how did some of the problems arise yeah. for you that, um, that led to the DISCO? Well, it has to do a lot with the notion of work. So DISCO, in a nutshell, is a way for people to work together in ways that are commons-oriented, feminist economic and cooperative. And we'll unpack what those, what those mean. But it's not a theoretical proposition. It's actually been developed out of the work of five years in my own socially oriented nonprofit co-op. That's the legal status of our co-op. So the name already tells you kind of like the coordinates of where, where we're going. Um, so this question of work, um, you often hear you know, people say, what is the future of work? You know, this is something that you hear again and again. And right now, the answer seems to be automation and technology. And we think that this question merits a fuller examination. And first of all, we can ask, what is work? And the typical answer would be, you know, like um, employment, you know, like wage labor, going somewhere where you get your paycheck at the end of the month. But if you take it in another sense, work is your, your productive capacity, where you put your energy, where you put your time. And if you're going to be um, engaged for a third of your life doing work, what is the work that you're doing? Where is the value that is being created going? Is it going to this abstract thing called the economy? Or is it actually tackling the great challenges of our times, meaning climate change, social breakdown, etc.? And can we find a way to combine that? So a way to tackle these challenges has been activism. Yeah? But activism is usually relegated for those who can actually do it. And on the more institutional level, like for example, there's this talk about like NGOs, non-government, yeah? the third sector, non-profit, it's all in negatives. It's the third sector, so there's one and two in front of it. So you know, we kind of like relegate this to the side. And there's also something else with activism. Um, I'll give you two stereotypes of the activist. So one is the person who's like really going for it and you know, they just like grow their own food and they can totally do it. And another one is the trust fund kid who actually has enough money and can take care of his or her life to be able to do activism. So we wanted to bring these things together and to find ways for people to work together that also had a no social mission. Now, this is nothing new. This has been a challenge that has been tackled by cooperatives for the last 175 years by the social and solidarity economy. But maybe what distinguishes what we do is that we're very observant about some of the socioeconomic trends that we see right now with things like the so-called sharing or gig economy, with automation, with the digitalization of the economy. How can we use these tools for social and environmental outcomes and also to be inclusive and educational about these terms? So, you know, they're not something that the experts will deal with, but how can you take advantage of that? 
And so Guerrilla Media Collective, what does it do? Yeah. And what kinds of challenges have you encountered in that work? Yeah. So Guerrilla Media Collective was co-founded by my partner and co-author of the Disco Manifesto, Anne-Marie Utrero and myself. And this happened around the time of Occupy. So before Occupy, there was a very similar movement in Spain called Quinceme, 15M. And arguably, it was a big inspiration, along with the Arab Spring in Occupy, in decentralized organizing, in not having like single issue courses and, you know, like occupying a space and gathering like all, the, all this attention. So while this was happening, we were talking to the library generously donated by Patty Smith in Sukhori Park and with the library in Spain. And of course, there was a lot of miscommunication because of the language issue. And I had been a professional translator for 20 years. So, you know, it's like, this is very obvious. This is what we have to do. So we started facilitating those conversations. But then the issue arose is like, we don't have enough free time to do this. How can we make this quote unquote sustainable? How can we spend more time basically translating the stuff that we feel is valuable? So we came up with guerrilla translation at that time. And I'll tell you how guerrilla translation works without getting into the, the nitty gritty. So say, for example, that I've read, and this is a true story. I've read a text of Nathan's that I've been really inspired by. And I'm a translator. I have translator superpowers. And you know, all of you, everyone has certain talents that they've developed that they can articulate. Yeah. So for Nathan, I would say, hey, um, we're going to translate your text to Spanish pro bono. You know, this will not cost you or anyone anything and we will put it in our blog so people can freely access it, okay? So this is, you're all familiar with pro bono. This means voluntary work, okay? So if we translate something for Nathan, we actually measure the value that we've created doing pro bono. And translation is particularly easy because you measure it by words, by word count. So say that your piece, your article is 1,000 words, that would be 100 credits, okay? So this goes into a sort of piggy bank. but. We also function as an agency. So say that Laura over there has a paper that needs to be translated by next Wednesday. So we say, cool, we're going to put on our other hat and now we're going to work with you as an agency and we're going to give you a quote. And by miraculous coincidence, her paper is also 1,000 words. So you will pay us $100, okay? So when she pays us, um, let's say that 25% of what she's paid us goes to fulfill the credits that have been accrued by the people doing their pro bono work. So to summarize, there's pro bono work done in one side, but we actually pay back for it. And why do we do this? Because again, sometimes activism is a privilege. And you may have several kids, you may be holding down two jobs. Let's face it, at the end of the day, you're going to be exhausted, too exhausted to be an activist. So we wanted to prototype this so the activism would be baked in to the quote unquote business model. And when I say business model, this actually crosses over because this kind of like openness and forging relationships put us in touch with a bunch of authors and the co-op has always had a st steady stream of work just by gifting it away. And what for us, there's many challenges which we can, we can talk about. And that's two types of value that we measure in Guerrilla Media Collective. And this is the basis of the disco model. But there's a third type and this is care work. So depending on how familiar you may be with feminist economics. So feminist economics um, criticizes normative abstractions of value. In the mainstream economy, we say that GDP is valuable, but everything else is made invisible. 
and what feminist economics, I mean, apart from issuing the gendered aspects of economics, because you know, economics is based around the figure of homo economicus. So there's already like a gendered aspect of the, to the phrase of people that want to, rational actors that want to maximize value, yeah? But with that aside, feminist economics also um, examines care and effective work. And this is the work that is not measured by GDP. This is the work that is usually done by women. This is child rearing, this is taking care of the home, etc. And if we take that into account, this is actually what facilitates the mainstream economy. But this is externalized, this is not seen. This is something just like certain environmental considerations are externalized, care work is kept out of the economy. So this is something that we incorporated into the model. And we have two ways of looking at care work. We make a distinction. We care for the members of the collective, okay? So everyone in our co-op has a mutual support buddy. So if I'm Nathan's mutual support buddy, once a month I'm gonna call you and I'm gonna listen to Nathan for a month. And this is part of work and we pay for this. And Nathan will be supporting someone else, the other person will be supporting someone. It's kind of like a conga line of, of mutual support. So this is also evident in the way that we communicate. And ironically, it leads to more productivity. Because if someone is feeling down, someone has their period, someone is depressed, we know. And it's not like this person has to put their hand up and say, I really need a day off. We say, let me take over. Because you know, we want you to have the day off. And we have this system of signaling about this. We have like check-ins and stuff. So that's care works for the members of the collective. But we also care for the collective itself because the collective has a social mission. And in our case, it's creating commons around translation, communication, etc. And for this social mission to be fulfilled, we need a healthy collective. So another part of this care work is what does the collective need to be healthy? What does it need to be fed in its paying work? It needs, because we do this pro bono work, it needs to meet certain quotas of pro bono work. Everybody needs to be happy. Someone has to be putting stuff on Twitter or Mastodon. So we see this as care work for the health of the collective. And then one further exploration, which we haven't had time to do, but it would be fascinating to do in research, is how can we enfranchise the care work that is outside the collective, in the home, in the family, etc. How can this play, play a part beyond communicating it, which we communicate quite, quite openly? Now, what do you mean by beyond communicating it? What kinds of ways can you take note and account for that type of work that is not necessarily in the, uh, in the workplace? I think that this is a huge issue because what we do is actually quote-unquote tokenized, meaning that we measure the care work that we do by hours. And there's, I, I could go into that, but, I'm, but I won't extend myself. I think that there's, there's a great complexity with that because you also have to, you have to respect the work and, you know, like home life and work-like balance. And maybe you don't, you want to have a permeable membrane, but you want to have like certain distances and stuff. In our case, just the communication of it has let us um, tweak kind of like the value model and knowing this person is in a more precarious situation or this person's family, so we're going to prioritize paying this person. And if you're coming from like the blockchain world, you wouldn't want to make everything like little algorithms and numbers, but this runs counter to certain tendencies in feminist economics. With that being said, there was a movement in the 70s called Wages for Housework. 
and you had folks like Silvia Federici, etc., involved in this. And it wasn't so much about like now we need wages for housework, but just putting the focus on that. Why mm. do we have wages for this type of work, but why do we not value this other type of work? That's a massive undertaking, and it's something that I would hope that we could do with research, but um, we cannot do it out of the experience of one collective. We need many pilots and many opinions to see what works and how we can have that as part of the equation, or leave it out if need be. It's a, yeah, it's a huge topic. So, I mean, that, that reference is an interesting one. That, you know, the Wages for Housework campaign you know, thought of itself as kind of revolutionary, as, as not just kind of, but as a revolutionary claim. Uh, on the assumption that so much that that the capitalist economy depends on so much uncompensated work that if that work were to be recognized, the system would collapse. Right? Uh, it's a very challenging claim. Is that a danger that you are taking on in your organization? In a sense, um, taking on so much in order to account for the things that other systems don't account for. Um, uh, how do you compete in a world where yeah. your competitors are, are not having to worry about all this really, really important stuff that you are taking mm. pains to worry about? Well, I mean, if it does bring about the collapse of the capitalist system, I think it would be <laughs> a worthwhile endeavor. But talking about collapse, you know, th there's this funny image about collapse, like you imagine like the Mad Max kind of collapse. Yeah? And I would say that we're in an ongoing collapse of capitalism, social relations, environmental degradation. So the work that we do actually like raises capacity. Now, this is not something that will go well as part of a business plan or a marketing meeting, but it also has to do with, um, with scope. So normally in economics, you're talking about economics of scale. Do you want to have like massive initial investment, which we will have to pay off over an eternity, okay, to gather means of production to produce stuff? But increasingly, these are becoming more cost-effective. It's like you can get together with a few friends, put together a couple of servers, and hey, you have a platform. Okay, so that, that's on the that, that's on the one hand, which is the lowering of the cost. But maybe we can start thinking instead of economies of scale, economies of scope. And this is part of the Disco vision, which is um, federation. We don't want to outcompete the behemoths of Silicon Valley on the same terms. We want lots of little solutions linked up in a kind of like wider framework. So I'll give you a, an example. Um, the market cap of the, um, of the main five main players of Silicon Valley, being Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Apple, and Facebook, is three trillion US dollars. But the annual turnover of the cooperative sector worldwide is, lo and behold, three trillion US dollars, or 3.2, 3.6, I think we've heard different figures. But what is the problem over here? They're not economically connected. They do not create an economic counterpower but it's latent. So I think that small things are beautiful and doing things in a small way is totally valuable and you can make a difference. For us, it's worked really well. We've been able to pull people arguably out of the, market, of the capitalist marketplace by doing mission-oriented work and you know, they have, we have a livelihood thanks to this. So that to me is like a big win. It's like we're not adding our productive capacities, our work to things that we may necessarily not agree with and which may be creating a lot of trouble down the line. Now the big question is how do we link up this latent economic, I would argue like political counterpower into something that can make a difference? And I don't have the answer and no one has the answer but while we're seeking an answer we might as well do something that will increase the likelihood of having more actionable affordances and outcomes. 
You're listening to Look, Looks Like New. We've been speaking with Stacco Troncoso, who's a Spain-based activist, a co-author of the new Disco uh, Manifesto, which you can find at disco.coop. We'll be right back. This program is brought to you by the KGNU Listener members and by Quish Sustainable Wealth. On the next edition of Alternative Radio, hear part two of an exclusive two-part program featuring Noam Chomsky on threats to peace and the planet. That's Alternative Radio, Wednesday evenings at 6, right here on Community Radio, KGNU, Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. This month, we're speaking with Stacco Troncoso, who's a Spain-based activist uh, with the Guerrilla Media Collective and a co-author of uh, a new manifesto on uh, DISCOs, or Distributed Cooperative Organizations. Uh, you can find it at disco.coop. Uh, so I want to ask you about the first word of that term, distributed. What does that mean in this context? How does this uh, play into efforts uh, uh, that we find, for instance, you mentioned the blockchain world, you know, the technologies surrounding Bitcoin and that sort of stuff where there's this dream mm -hmm. that we could have uh, a companyless societies where, where just protocols and networks would replace the corporation. Um, where does what you're calling for fit within that vision? What does distributed mean? It's a semantic critique, and I think that a lot of people that use decentralized uh, alluding to distributed, but they have quote-unquote decentralized um, outcomes. So decentralization, I mean, these are network topologies, but we also use them in another layer to talk about social relationships. So decentralized means that I can be a branch and there can be nodes connected to this branch. But if I go down, there may not be connectivity to the nodes. And in the blockchain world or the um, open source world, it's usually um, employed to talk about connectivity among nodes, but it doesn't talk about the power relationship among nodes, okay? So if we use the example of Bitcoin, Bitcoin has a Gini coefficient. Gini is the index that measures inequality, okay? Um, it has a Gini coefficient bigger than most national currencies, okay? So even though, yes, Bitcoin is open source, anyone can mine Bitcoin, it's like, sure, but if I don't have access to a computer, if I don't have access to electricity, I will not mine as many bitcoins as this gentleman that can be running a server factory in China running on um, dirty electricity. So like many things, the privilege which, which, with which you enter an economic system will determine the outcomes that you will have within that system. So distributed, I mean, apart from kind of like the more technical appreciation of the world, we use it to mean how about distribution of power? And the blockchain is a movement which, again, talks about disrupting and decentralized, you know, like institutions which are obsolete. But if you're not distributing or decentralizing what we call the trifecta of hierarchy, which is the patriarchy, capitalism, and colonialism, your decentralization is only going to benefit a few. And it's not true decentralization. So again, a lot of it is semantics, but we want it um, also to be a provocation because disco is a critique of something called the decentralized autonomous organization. So, you know, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes. It's distributed instead of decentralized, cooperative instead of autonomous. So those were the reasons that led us to, to defend 
this conversation that was very prevalent, you know, in conversations about networks in the 90s, etc., but kind of like died down where decentralized became like the, the overall term. So you think, uh, do you think of those technologies as playing a role in the system? I mean, it, it, yeah. as I was reading the manifesto, I, was, I couldn't tell whether you were um, uh, critiquing <laughs> the technologies and saying, actually, we should not even be focusing on the, that tech and instead focusing on our relationships, yeah. or actually maybe we can put these technologies in their place and put them to use. Let's do both. And I think it's concurrent, but my personal preference is to be very clear about the relationships and the value systems, and then see how technologies can either help or hinder that. And I think that distributed technologies are very important. But I also think that it's something that we should be concerned about, because there's billion-dollar investments by the likes of Goldman Sachs, HBSC, um, IBM, on blockchain and on decentralized autonomous organizations. And without going on what they are, they may become innovative and they may um, extend the reach and, uh, you know, like, when you think about things like the Internet of Things and how, like, this digital layer increasingly mediates our lives, what we're talking about with this decentralized autonomous organizations, just to, just to explain them away in, you know, this won't do it justice to the full complexity, but they're kind of like robot corporations, okay? that once you deploy in the blockchain, you don't need human interaction. This is not the truth, because there's always human interaction, but this is kind of like the ideal. We can do away with the messiness of humans, and we can have these efficient corporations. But if these corporations are being deployed by a tyrannical government, say, to articulate laws, or by a corporation that's solely oriented in prof on profits and can like legislate away their environmental responsibilities, there's no court of appeal. There's no one to talk to. There's no one to, to change their minds. So this technology is very attractive to both governments and corporations. So we wanted to make, what if like people who were coming more from like feminism, activism, and anti-capitalism and cooperativism actually designed something similar? What would it look like? And this is what we came up with, why we came up with the disco. Um, I'm happy that we're difficult to pigeonhole. And while I think that you can do something like the disco model on a blackboard, it would be extremely complicated. Um, distributed ledger technologies and blockchain technologies do present certain opportunities, which, just like the internet, will be taken away by those with the most power to invest in it. So I say, hey, let's, let's try to resist. And if it doesn't work, at least we tried. But unlike the revolutionary call of the last century, which is like, let's take the factory, let's take over the means of production, and let's organize, the, you know, like, when the means of production are in your home, and it's a computer, it becomes a much easier proposition, despite all the difficulties of going up against you know, the big Silicon Valley players of the day or the blockchain investments. I think that we, we have to try. So how do you do distribution of power in Guerrilla Media Collective? What are some of the, yeah. the, the particular techniques that, yeah. that you employ to do that? So I'm going to say like one of the ultimate cliches, which is knowledge is power. And many people, I mean, I mean first of all, like there's economic power. And let's start with that. So co-ops have done much better on this. So for example, like Mondragon, which is the marquee cooperative um, in the Basque region in Spain, has a pay ratio between the lowest paid worker and the CEO of one to six. That's pretty good when you consider that in a corporation it's like one to a thousand. Well, I have no idea, but it's in those very high numbers. Um, Outlandish, which is a co-op in the UK, a technological co-op, they have one to three. In Guerrilla Media Collective, it's one to one. 
but now that creates a problem. It's like mm, this person that has just joined the co-op, um, we haven't we haven't checked each other out. We don't know this person. How can we how can we pay this person the, the same value? How can we distribute power? So one of the techniques that we have um, we have certain membership levels, and they work with dating metaphors. So we have casual members and we have committed members. So you know like. You're dating some, you know, you have a casual relationship. Yeah, I'll see you later. Maybe I like you, I don't like you. Or you have a committed relationship. It's like, okay, we need certain responsibilities. But in between, we have something called the dating phase. So this is where we're checking each other out. So what this means, in essence, is that we have a nine-month training period for people to join the co-op. For example, in Spain, if you want to join a co-op, you have to provide social capital. You have to buy your way in. And, you know, that's 2,500 euros normally in Spain which is arguably affordable compared to like being a shareholder, but we would argue that many people cannot afford that. So in our collective, it's actually, what is it, 20 euros, but we will ask you to work voluntarily for nine months, learning the ropes. And you know, there's much more fine-grained complexity with that, there's like pay levels and stuff, until people become um, committed members. So that's one way to, to distribute power. Going back to my earlier statement, knowledge is power, so what we do during this mentoring phase is have mutual learning. So just the same way that everyone has a mutual support body for the effective support, you also have a, a mentor, a person who will be with you during the whole process. We have extensive documentation, but it's not enough to have like a really cool wiki of best practices because everybody learns differently. And some people may learn better with visuals or with an infographic or with a conversation. And this has been hugely successful um, in the parts of the code that we, we've implemented it. And it's created a truly multidisciplinary team that now is able to do a lot of things. We started with translation, but you know, like these people are doing like social media, they're doing, and they're developing the disco model along with it. And it's hugely gratifying, you know, how can we have more people who are not academics or who are not like the privileged trendsetters for like the next wave of activism or the future of work, but people who just want to work in different ways. And not only is power distributed, in the co-op, but I think that a co-op, an organization with distributed power, can face off against other organizations much better and can relate to like-minded organizations much better too. So one last thing I want to bring up is this notion of the commons, which is central to yeah. what this um, uh, business is about, creating commons yeah. and having a relationship, uh, to uh, a productive relationship, not just toward creating private goods, uh -huh. but creating common goods. Can, can you say a bit about what that, that means in the context of both the you know, guerrilla mm -hmm. media collective in particular, but also in the, in the disco model? Yeah, I mean, the commons are essential, and I would argue with you that commons good, commons, common goods is an economistic term, where to us the commons are a social process. So we define the commons as a resource governed by a community according to the rules of that community. So you can take something like uh, community-supported agriculture. The resource would be the food, the farming, the community would be the farmers, the people who are putting out the boxes, and the rules would be like, okay, um, who's doing the delivery on Thursday, or who's picking up the tomatoes, um, whatever. That's one kind of a commons. Something like Wikipedia, the resource would be universal knowledge. The community would be the Wikimedia Foundation, the writers, the editors, and the rules is, what do you need to do to write an article that complies with the rules of Wikipedia? So we see the commons as social processes, okay? But if you want to get down to resources, um, we can have commons are kind of like the opposite of commodities. And we toe this fine line because, yes, we are selling services on the market, but we're also creating commons, both through our pro bono work, 
so the stuff that we translate, we're creating a knowledge commons of articles that otherwise would not have been available because there was nobody to translate them. But also we find hard because most of our agency work is licensed with free licenses. So arguably, they're also a commons. So even though we're getting paid, we create commons. And if you see it as a social relationship, I think that that's the work of the future. That's creating capacity. So we have like two economic tendencies. Um, one of them is financialization. And you know what this is about. This is the process of turning nature into commodities and relationships into services. And this is the apex of neoliberalism. And this is kind of like the economic wedge which we're trying to fit for the environmental and social challenges that we have right now. It's not a very good fit. At the same time, you have something called decommodification. What does this mean? Well, instead of going to the record store to buy an LP, it's becoming, despite DRM and other things, it's becoming increasingly hard to sell certain things online where you can just share them. Um, I used to have to pay 2,000 pounds to get a copy of Encyclopedia Britannica. That's been decommodified through Wikipedia. So we want to address both things. We want to fight financialization, but we also want to create capacity. And because the commons is so integral to the work that we do in the co-op, what happens when the money runs out? Well, maybe through discos, we've created ways to feed, clothe, and house each other, which do not depend on market dynamics. Hey, we were doing it all along. Do you understand? So you have the market work, but you also have the commons created pro bono work. But it's also a training. It's a training on how to, you know, to be a commoner. There's no commons without commoning. There's a training in feminist economics. How many of you have you had like a course on feminist economics within like an economics course? It's a course on like distributed architectures and P2P while you're working, okay? Not as some, you know, something to get your title, etc. So, yeah, I think it's... If someone wants to, what does it mean to be a commoner? If somebody wanted to become a commoner yeah. today yeah. Uh, in the middle of the world that we find ourselves in, what are some first steps? Um, don't look to people like us for the answers. Um, I will quote Timothy Leary in his deathbed, find the others and find it in yourself because you don't get educated for this. Um, you don't ed get educated to relate to other people or to take care of other people outside maybe of like the family, family locus. So be becoming a commoner is not just signing up for the next great project and then becoming disappointed because maybe you, had, uh, you find it hard to relate, but it's actually like a process of self-examination of your identity. Um, my colleagues David Bollier and Silke Helfrich, who have written this wonderful book on the commons called Free, Fair and Alive, The Insurgent Power of the Commons, they talk about an ontological shift. Because if the commons are also like another way of creating value, from value we go to values. And values are how we relate to the world. So how about we question some of the values that are normative and that inform our personal and economic interactions to see them from a more commons-based point of view. So that would be one way to do it, but you have to figure it out. You have to be exposed to it, you, have to, you can read, you can join groups, etc. But ultimately it's up, to you, it's up to you and it has to be self-fulfilling, not to meet some ideal that some guy in a class or radio show is telling you about. You're listening to Looks Like New on KGNU. Uh, we've been speaking with Staco Trancoso, who's a Spain-based activist and a co-author of the um, Disco Manifesto on Distributed Cooperative Organizations. We'll be right back. Mm -hmm. 
Hi, this is Helen Forster from E-Town. A woman with an incredible voice and an amazing career, Lorena McKenna is with us this week, along with soulful artist Greg Laswell. And we'll have a story about a woman helping the homeless stay healthy with a simple item of clothing. This week in E-Town. Sunday morning at 11 on KGNU. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder, and this month we're speaking with Stacco Troncoso, a Spain-based activist and co-founder of the Guerrilla Media Collective, also a co-author of the new Disco Manifesto, a manifesto about this new model of distributed cooperative organizations, which you can find out more about at disco.coop. So we're here uh, recording at uh, CU Boulder on campus, and we have a live audience here who's going to join into the conversation. We have a, um, a, a first speaker uh, lined up. Do you want to take it away, please? Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you for being here. My question was, like, care is really important, and it's important to, like, create ways for people to get and give it in, like, our existing world. But it feels scary to think that, like, the mutual care system, like, to, like, think of all those mechanisms and relationships as, like, paid work. So how do you, like, approach how that can feel scary sometimes to say that, like, instead of valuing work that is not paid, we are making all work paid or all care paid? How do you navigate the ways that might feel tricky? Yeah. So I'll answer for our collective, and this is, in the Disco Manifesto, we talk about our experience, but we're really excited about other people, like, taking on this challenge and to have many answers. So the care work park, which I've explained, we time track, but um, we don't get paid for it per se. But this actually clarifies the conversations, meaning if one person has done 30 hours of care work one month and another person has gotten paid a bunch because they've done like translation or like social media for, for a campaign or something, this clarifies the conversations. So we don't use it to tokenize it, you know, to get directly paid, um, except for like um, project when we've had project funding, we use the project funding, we assign it that way, okay? But it's to have um, more information because um, many of the disagreements that you may have when you're working together is because of all this invisible di uh, dimension. Maybe someone is, um, you know, um, is at work when your buddy at work is depressed and you go to the bar and you listen to him for like three hours, okay? And, you know, you're doing this work, but it, you know, it's just like washed away but it does reflect. So this is the kind of like dimension that we try to, to internalize, but it's a challenge because for example, like time tracking feels invasive by nature and we're not time tracking. So you cannot go to the toilet in the Amazon warehouse, true story. We're time tracking to get used, you know, to like this process and to visibilize what other people are doing. And Personally, we decided, you know, like in the long run, not to have it tied to like payment per se, but to have it as kind of like a tax system. Meaning if we're all doing the same amount of care work, okay, like we're all on the level. If there's great discrepancies, we have to address that, but we don't automate them. Um, many people in the blockchain space would automate them. We use it to clarify conversations. And, but it's a, it's a long process, and this is why we need this kind of like dating phase to, to, to know, you know, how, how does this feel comfortable, 
even though it's really challenging. Stocko, thank you for the examples you gave. I know you didn't want to dive too deeply when you talked about the issue of the balance between financialization and creating new knowledge. But how are you balancing that if, say, you, the example you gave is that Nathan's got a publication in English and the cooperative uh, translates into Spanish. How is that publisher not creating, forcing you all to stay in that financial, or, or fight, resist and fight you to stay in that financialization commodification model? Yeah. I mean, for, for our case, and, and again, this is something that we look forward for other people figuring out um, with the translation co-op, um, this is basically economic planning and knowing the availability of people. So what we ask for is for a minimum of, for a translator, 5,000 words or the equivalent of 400 credits slash euros um, in more understandable terms for our US audience. This would be two days of full-time work out of every three months. So this is like a very low-level threshold. But because there's 10 people working in the co-op, you see regular content in the blogs like every week, every two weeks, this is enough. And sometimes, I mean, and this leaves enough free time for like, you know, we're translating this free for a life book, we're translating it to Spanish, that's a paid gig. You know, there's a deadline for that we have to, m to make available. We also have the luxury when we take pro bono work, it's like, sorry, there's no deadline, you know, and we have the luxury of choosing. We accept suggestions, but normally the criteria is like if the translator is passionate about something, she will contact the author to translate this. So, you know, you have like this inherent motivation. But I mean, you have to balance that with the availability. And, you know, th th this is again like quarterly economic planning. And for us, this low threshold has worked. For other, other parts of the co-op, which are more informal, which do graphic design. And we have another note, which is called Agit Prop for propaganda because we don't want to say marketing because you know we're <laughs> so, <laughs> so about the commons. So we're figuring out what the thresholds are for the pro bono work. Um, but again, this is down to the specific circumstances of each, whether it's a disco, cooperative, etc. You have to be sustainable. But if you're doing activism on the side, um, you might as well see how that activism is economically impacting your own life and the life of those that you're working and sharing with. Uh, thank you. Um, you described uh, accounting for, for care labor, and uh, I've been organizing with independent workers, freelancers here in Denver, and they have, they, uh, many of them leave the, the standard economic scene, the, the, the corporate scene, uh, and, and because it doesn't account for care, and it's just a, a, a bad experience for many people. Uh, and I wonder what your thoughts are on the uh, attractiveness of companies, organizations that account for, that actually account for care as a way to pull people into this alternative economic paradigm. I think that the devil's in the details because when you, you, were, you were talking about companies that don't account for care and suddenly had an image of the Googleplex with its daycare center for children with its like free food, etc., which kind of like puts care work so that you're a more productive subject for Google's um, shareholders. So I think that there's a dangerous distinction over here of how like the corporation kind of like moves in. If you read Margaret Atwood's um, trilogy of like the year of the flood, et cetera, this is said like in the future, where it's kind of like a Googleplex kind of like um, fenced off, um, you know, like um, communities. 
and there's like you know like the the projects or you know the um, <coughs> the, the shacks and stuff. So so th there's this kind of like like really binary work uh, world, and we don't want care to be just like set in the in the corporate world. At the same time, people are becoming freelancers, and that's also like a double-edged sword because. For example, I don't know, the way it used to be, or at least the way it used to be in Europe, if you're working for the company, for the corporation, you're part of wage labor, and the state will give you, not in the case of the US, will give you health care, etc. So that was that type of care provided by the state, which is you know, increasingly being torn down through you know, um, austerity programs, etc. So that's another type of care that may be maybe not the, the most convenient. So what I would argue would be for models, I mean, there's like the personal care, and it would be really good to receive this in the workplace, which is what we argue in this call. There's fostering a culture of care while you're at the workplace and beyond, but there's also like care systems. So we can have things like the social care co-ops in Emilia-Romagna. So you know what the story is. It's like um, those of us in Europe that have been hit by austerity, we're going to privatize health services. Yeah, we're going to give them for the corporation, okay? But what they did over there is they gave it to social care co-ops and they're multi-stakeholder co-ops. So, you know, you have like various various people that do, do decision making over, over there. And that's an exciting way also to formalize care, not in like, well, it's your business, it's your problem, not my problem, I want you here at eight o'clock. Or, well, it's the state and you have to, but if you're a denizen, not a citizen, if you're an immigrant, you know, we don't care about you. Or yes, if, you're, if you can go to the Googleplex, you get care. What about the spaces in between? So I think that this, what, with what we're proposing, and of course all the complementary movements, that can be an answer to that question. First of all, thank you for being here. I find this really fascinating. Um, say that somebody was a part of a vibrant network of relationships in their local community um, that you know is intrinsically social and there's caring going on and being exchanged in that network. And that network had the potential to shift or add a layer that was this economic activity where we were able to network our skills together and begin funneling actual you know, money through the system. Um, how developed is the DISCO model for, for a group like that to look at and to begin modeling themselves after? Is there um, you know, programming or articulation um, that has taken place to describe how, you know, how another organization would begin to do this? And I, I'm just getting introduced to this idea, so thank you for any clarification yeah. there. So here, before talking about DISCO, I would talk about the commons. And one important thing in the commons is to keep commons and commerce um, clearly defined, okay? Um, if there's vibrant relationships, you don't want to kill them through economic interactions. You want the economic side to allow your sustainability to have more time available for the vibrant relationships. But this is a minefield. You have to be extremely careful. Also more about the commons. The commons thrive on their specificity. There are no two commons which are alike. And also commons are based in patterns, not blueprints. So blueprints prescribe and patterns describe. So the DISCO model is a series of patterns. I mean, the governance model that we propose is the guerrilla media collective governance model, but we don't expect anyone to copy it. But we have a series of patterns that have worked for a cooperative that works digitally, that does media, okay? So we're talking about like a media co-op here in the, in the university. That can be a template. How do we do this for people who are working in a permaculture garden? They have to figure it out. 
and we're in conversation. You know, the, there's like a few pilot projects that want to take part in Disco. And the people that we've been working to, we've tried to get them as varied as possible. So to just go from like, quote unquote, digital labor, which is what we're doing, to actually like maintaining like physical spaces, it's very, very different. So we can have the base governance model, and like these are the patterns that um, were successful for us. There's also a series of, um, I'll run this down. We have like seven disco principles, and these are like the minimum ask for there to be a disco. So there's the seven cooperative principles, which you may be familiar with. So we kind of like did our spin, and really quickly I'll, I'll say what they are. Um, so discos have to be oriented towards social or environmental ends, not profit. It's like do something that matters, you know, with your, with your capacity. Um, they have to be multi-constituent, the same way that we have like casual, um, you know, dating relationships and committed. You know, that's not just, it's not just for the benefit of the worker owners, which is what co-ops are really good at, but what about everybody else? They have to actively create commons, not just take from the commons. They have to be transnational. We may have this great um, local food garden, okay? But um, if the garden next door plants Monsanto terminator seeds and the wind blows over because there's a legislation over here that allows that, then we're in trouble. So, you know, this is also like a political proposition. So we also argue that we can share transnationally. Um, the fifth principle is that they're focused on care work, which we've spoken about. The sixth is that they examine new flows of value instead of like wage labor or this is what you get paid at the end of the month. We have the care work, the, you know, the pro bono work and the, um, and the agency work. And the last one is that they have to be federated. And this goes back to what we spoke about, economies of scope, not of scale. Um, if you'll allow me, I'll get away with a quote that I've given in every single talk for the last two years. So for the benefit of the radio show. This is by British ecologist David Fleming, author of Surviving the, the Future. So he said, like, large scale problems do not require large scale solutions they require an abundance of small-scale solutions within a large-scale framework. So for us, commons would be small solutions, and peer-to-peer, commons-based peer production, which is what you see like in Wikipedia, these kind of like systems would be the framework. Talking about disco, an individual disco, like Guerrilla Media Collective, would be a small solution. A disco framework of not only disco, but social solidarity economy, platform corps, etc. that would be a large-scale framework to, to address this. Yeah, and if you look at the Guerrilla Media Collective wiki, you see quite <laughs> extensive documentation of the kinds of things they're, they're up to in, in a lot of detail. You gave some good examples about care work on like the individual level and then organizational level. And I'm wondering if you have any or you have any thoughts around sort of the federated level. Um, what would it look like for care work for the organizations in a federation? Um, the, the honest answer is I don't know, and I'm fascinated um, we've just prototyped it at our own level. I guess that the easiest thing would be to kind of, so we have like mutual support calls every month. So maybe with the disc, the next disco over, you can try and like have meetings with like certain rhythms or certain um, frequencies. We also have like our, our own blog where we tell about our stuff. And to us that also speaks to the care work dimension. And we actually like want to encourage to like other discos um, as, Nathan has um, alluded to, we have a generous overabundance of documentation in our wiki. But having documentation is not enough. You need curation, you need narrative, you need storytelling. So part of the care work, we believe, is like telling those stories. But this is a two-way street, so we also want to listen to, to other stories. Um, 
whether there's like more formalized slash tokenized ways of doing it because we are measuring it and we expect like other discos to either use the same system of measuring that we do by ours or other systems. I think that we could mutualize that. I think that we could factor that. But that would be like one of the three kinds of like value piggy banks or streams, okay? With which we can relate to like other discos and say, okay, where is help needed? Or how much um, outlandish again, um, and you may be familiar with, with Inspiral, they have this thing called co-budget. And this is like participatory budgeting. So maybe they allocate like 15 or like 10% of the surpluses for projects that people can propose, okay? So this is also like a kind of care work in a sense. It's like we're making resources available, but that's m the more like economistic, tokenistic sense. And I wouldn't want that to overshadow the messiness. Um, the, the Ruth Potts, who's like an activist in the UK, said in a conference something that really stuck with me, which is like the soft, the soft stuff is the hard stuff. And this is like getting you know, to figure people, like listening to them, getting to know your own values. And this is a difficult process, but it's a beautiful process. And it's a process that hopefully we would have like within the Federation. But again, because there's no federation right now, it's like, you know, we have um, one quite developed pilot project and five or six, like, people who are like, um, you know, groups that want to pilot it. We're not ready to answer that right now. Um, this has to be figured out on ongoing. Is there a story you could share to conclude um, from the experience of the, of the collective about how maybe this, this new model for accounting uh, or the kinds of relationships you're very intentionally building has, you know, affected somebody's life or has yeah. has changed the nature of how value might flow in the organization. It's affected my life and it's affected the the life of my partner. And I mean, I'm, I mean, looking back, I mean, thanks to this, um, we've been able to to keep going through difficult times. And if you look at you check out our website, it's like wow, we've done so much. It's like you you only like realize when you look at the path back. We've also, like I say, like um, arguably, and this is an argument, like pull people out of like, not, maybe not the capitalist marketplace, but you know, like profit-oriented outcomes. Um, so we have people doing work. They're not translating for the bank or the car company anymore, and they're not getting, they're not feeling alienated. And you know, alienation is, is a huge thing, and we've been we've been having this conversation for the last 150 years. So it's integration. Um, we've also been able to like um, help one of our members um, get his visa status because we've been able to give this person regular work. Why have we been able to do that? Because with the value accounting, it's been easy for us to like, okay, we'll all take a cut for now so that you can you know you can show this, etc. Um, and it also like enfranchises people. You know, you don't have like different departments where there's this like shadowy accounting department that no one knows about. And you say, well, that's unfair. So, you know, like it enriches the conversation. And to be clear, we have a long way to go, especially like in terms of like having like accessible platforms to have these conversations and to like um, display the value, et cetera. This is the work of the, of the coming years. Yeah, there's, uh, there's many stories. I don't want to like personalize it too much um, because um, I could tell my story, but I could tell other people's stories, but I don't feel comfortable just being like too, too specific. Well, thank you for sharing what you've shared. Yeah, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Stacco Trancoso, a Spain-based activist and co-founder of the Guerrilla Media Collective, also a co-author of the new Disco Manifesto, 
on distributed cooperative organizations that you can get at disco.coop. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. Uh, Looks Like New is a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. Laura Daly was our engineer for this show. You can find out more about our work at cmci.colorado.edu slash medlab. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word about this show and consider leaving a review if you're into that sort of thing, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also love to hear from you with comments and guest ideas. You can reach me at medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us next month. Thank you.